Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 5 of season 2 of Apocryphal Australia. My name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins. And we've got another jam-packed episode today, Stephen. But before we get into our stories that we've been researching mightily, I've got a little follow-on from last episode where I thought it would be a good idea if we started to let the loyal listeners out there know a little bit about the magnificent Apocryphal Australia headquarters and some of the objects we've accumulated over the years. And I thought I'd introduce them to this. This is a paperweight, and it's the very same paperweight that stopped the blackmail papers sent by Margot Twelfth in the Twelfth Indigo Affair from blowing away. Now, we haven't covered this affair, but just as a little sort of summary, this was the affair that resulted in the resignation of a federal cabinet minister, the collapse of a major building company, and the discovery of a new variety of kangaroo gnat. Now, it's a lovely paperweight, a crystal dome, highly polished and very tactile. It's one of our prized possessions here at the Apocryphal Australia headquarters. The place just reeks with history, doesn't it? Certainly does, Stephen. Now, I'll go straight into my first story for this episode. And this is all about Moonlight Beach. Another geographical vignette, if you like. Moonlight Beach is a small town set on a pristine stretch of coastline some 20 kilometres north of Bangan's Head, New South Wales. A popular surfing, fishing and recreational destination, Moonlight Beach's population increases tenfold in the summer months. The annual Moonlight Beach Cup is a light-hearted golf tournament held on the tiny but well-kept nine-hole course which has been maintained since 1926 by members of the Hammurabi family. The Moonlight Beach Art Show is held every February and is one of southern New South Wales' most critically acclaimed forums for displaying shell-based art forms. The idyllic nature of Moonlight Beach of today, however, is a far cry from the dark and bloody past. The history of the area is one steeped in the supernatural. Local Indigenous people knew the area well and avoided it. Sixteen sailing ships sank off the coast in the years before 1850. Many of these tragedies occurred in unseasonable storms, although two ships, the Alma May and the Smithsonian, were seen to plunge to the bottom of the sea on clear, sunny, almost windless days. In 1840, a whaling station was set up at Moonlight Beach, but two years later it was found abandoned, with no sign of the 15 employees. The town proper was founded in 1866 on the shore of Moonlight Creek. It served a thriving hinterland of dairy farms and general agriculture. In its first ten years, the townspeople suffered a remarkable run of murders, kidnappings, possessions by evil spirits, hauntings and rampant tenure. 
Despite this, the township prospered and swelled to some thousand residents by the turn of the century, when a large crack opened in the middle of Main Street and demons from hell laid waste to the local butcher shop. While this setback would have spelled the end of many communities, the folk of Moonlight Beach were stout-hearted, probably due to many years of warding off assorted gremlins and monstrosities that regularly plagued the town. Within three years, a town hall had been built next to the post office and a town song had been written by the local bandmaster. This, however, did not prevent the run of portentous events. In 1906, Moonlight Creek ran red with blood for 24 hours. On the night of June 12, 1907, the sound of hooves were heard on rooftops all over town. On December 2, 1908, two mysterious strangers speaking a language no one could understand suddenly appeared in Main Street, stayed for an hour and then vanished. In 1910, a plague of locusts ate the entire contents of Armstrong's greengrocery. Over the next 50 years, apparitions, visitations and omens appeared in Moonlight Beach with the regularity of unwanted relatives from overseas. Flocks of strange birds, mysterious writing on walls, ghostly spectres, Moonlight Beach had the lot. The townsfolk became inured to the supernatural, though barely noticing the most bloodthirsty phantom or spirit. In 1960, a young man came to the town and promised to rid Moonlight Beach of all unearthly manifestations. The Shire president, Barry Dongle, accepted this offer. After a good solid bagpiping in Main Street, the young man assured the curious townsfolk that they would be bothered no longer. Barry Dongle congratulated the youngster, but notoriously stingy, refused to pay him the £10 the young man asked for. Instead, Barry showed him the bus. The next day at dawn, a mysterious piping was heard in the Main Street of Moonlight Beach. Those who looked out of their windows saw the strange young man with his bagpipes, dancing a sprightly jig as he marched in the direction of the town outskirts. Following him were hundreds of rats, so everybody was pretty happy with that outcome. Moonlight Beach has been spook-free from that day onwards. So basically that young man has ruined a perfectly good tourist opportunity. (laughs) I suppose he had. He'd attract a definite type of tourist if there were all sorts of manifestations still continuing today. Well, I'm sure their money's as good as anyone else's. Stephen, what's first up for you today? Well, Michael, this is a tale all about perseverance. It's called The Kelp Kings of King Island. Located some 90 kilometres from the southern tip of mainland Australia, King Island is a small windswept island in the middle of Bass Strait. After the Second World War, soldier settlers were granted plots of land on the island and they began a tradition of providing quality crops, dairy and meat that continues today. Except for Ron King. Ron was one of the soldier settlers. He arrived on the island in 1951 to find he'd been granted the most barren, windswept, rocky bit of land left in the soldier settler program. Nonetheless, Ron knuckled down to start farming. The crops he grew were stunted and weedy, if they germinated at all. His land was far too salty from its proximity to the sea. He tried sheep. It isn't known what happened to them, but there was a pack of wild dogs roaming the island. The dogs were the progeny of animals that belonged to Lady Miriam Gray, who had visited the island in the company of the then Tasmanian governor. 
the dogs had escaped and had eluded capture ever since. However, it was thought unlikely that these dogs would have been responsible for the loss of the sheep, given that they were miniature Pekingese. Don't get me wrong, these dogs were capable of delivering a pretty vicious nip if cornered, but there had been talk of the dog pack needing protection from the sheep, not vice versa. The general consensus was that Ron's sheep had been blown away during a particularly strong wind. Ron married local girl Louisa Heenan. She was the daughter of the local beef farmer, and her father gifted the newlyweds some cattle. These were heavier than sheep, therefore less likely to blow away. But the soil of the King Farm was too poor to support cattle, and they grew weak and had to be removed. In fact, the soil was little more than broken-down rock that had not made it past the pebble stage, and soil was often sold on the island's black market, just to cater to farmers like Ron, who had such poor land. This practice gave rise to the term dirt farmers, as some landowners turned their land over to huge compost heaps, which they then sold on to people like Ron. One windy Saturday, actually could have been any day really as they're all windy, Ron and Louisa walked the length and breadth of their piece of land and did a stock take of what they had. They came up with rocks, moss, more rocks but smaller, and kelp. The coastline on Ron's farm was constantly awash with kelp torn away from the kelp beds of Bass Strait. Now, Ron was nothing if not imaginative, and he was regarded as pretty much nothing, so they left all the thinking to Louisa. She wondered if they could do something with the kelp. Ron replied it was too tough to do anything with, and so Louisa came up with the idea of kelp leather. They could make shoes out of it. The shoes lasted for a while, but became smelly, then fell apart. Then Louisa hit upon the idea of drying the kelp, pulverising it and selling the resulting powder as a health supplement. Ron opined that if they were going to do that, they might as well say it's good in ice cream as well. Louisa agreed, even though Ron was just being sarcastic. They put advertisements in all of the mainland newspapers and soon they had to employ people to harvest the kelp and help process it. The kelp was being used as a food additive in lots of products. It was being used in dentistry the building industry, chemistry, and for any application that Louisa could make up as a plausible use of the kelp. And yes, it was even included in ice cream as a stabiliser. Ron bought up all the land he could that had sea frontage as the orders kept coming in. Then, disaster struck. Various government bodies decided to investigate the advertised properties of kelp. They took samples, ignored Ron and Louisa's protests, and subjected them to rigorous tests the kelp samples, not Ron and Louisa. And they found that every single claim that Louisa had made was 100% true. This, of course, was very surprising to Ron and Louisa King. The King family went on to become multi-millionaires, but they kept their farm on King Island, and even today, Ron still helps out with the kelp. Stephen, that certainly deserves one of these. That's apocryphal. Kelp, eh, Stephen? <laughs> it's it's amazing stuff. In my research, actually, I covered some of their, their claims as well, and it is, it, it's everywhere. And it could save the world. And I'm just thinking that the kings, well, they see weed and use it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll work on that one. I'll take it on the road and uh, see if we can actually get uh, polish that one up a bit. I'd see take it on the road and leave it on the road and hope something hits it. 
And now, Michael, this one this one sounds very, very interesting. This is a, a this has all the political intrigue and interest that we love here at AA. Yeah, look, let's face it. This one is a story of scandal, and everybody loves opening the scandal box. This is the Roscoe Hanover affair of 1978. The Roscoe Hanover affair was the archetypal federal cover-up, an incident so fraught with scandal and salaciousness that it made tabloid newspaper proprietors salivate like Mr Pavlov's dog at the sound of the Avon lady. Roscoe Hanover was the Parliament House hairdresser from 1972 until 1978. In that time he quaffed all the biggies, Goff, Mal, Ingmar... Visiting interstate politicians made it a point to see Roscoe and his magic scissors, and overseas visitors were always introduced to the tonsorial splendour of Mr Hanover. However, it came to light in 1978 that Roscoe Hanover was not all that he seemed. An idle federal police officer, Colin McQueen, noticed that the amount of hair swept out of the hairdressing studio was considerably less than expected. Sensing an opportunity, McQueen put a case to his superiors that this discrepancy could not be explained by the thinning locks of most of the politicians, but instead was due to a terrorist plot, an environmentalist conspiracy, or both. Around-the-clock surveillance began immediately. Unfortunately, McQueen was the only member of his task force, codenamed Laughing Stock. After 12 days of 24-hour shifts... McQueen filed a report that detailed the vivid hallucinations that come from sleep deprivation. Undeterred after a short break and some intensive counselling, McQueen resumed his surveillance. Telephone taps, long-range photography and sleeping once a day brought McQueen the results he'd been hoping for and yet secretly dreading. Roscoe Hanover was the head of a voodoo cult. On questioning, Roscoe Hanover admitted that he'd been practising voodoo rites for decades and his family numbered dozens of people willing to die for him. Or at least write anonymous threatening letters for him. His job as a hairdresser to the rich and famous allowed him to compile hair which was used in creating voodoo dolls of immense power. After only 34 hours of continuous interrogation, Roscoe Hanover grew expansive detailing some of the more ridiculous decisions, situations, utterances and antics which he and his family had forced politicians into. As this correlated strongly with the observed facts, the police had no choice but to believe him. As Colin McQueen noted in the interrogation log, It explains so much, so many inexplicable things for a start, things that ordinary Australians had trouble believing their elected representatives would do. Roscoe Hanover was tried in a secret military court and sentenced to a million years jail, with three months of this taken as already having been served while on remand. Goodness me. Well, well, well. My gut feeling is that Roscoe Hanover is active again or there's a copycat operating in federal parliament. The facts would point that way, I think, Stephen. There are so many decisions made that you can't explain any other way. Stephen, what have you got up next for us? Keen listeners to the the podcast might remember the uh, the item we did on the on the Sunbury Music Festival in in season one, and this one is is about 
something that, that came about because of Sunbury. If Sunbury was Australia's Woodstock, then the Malmarsh Rock Festival of 1972 was Australia's ultimate, or at least its Osmond family variety hour. The Malmarsh Festival was the brainchild of Andrew Zool Langford, an Adelaide-born scrap metal dealer and amateur codebreaker, whose father played a not insignificant role in the cracking of the Enigma cipher machine in World War II. Andrew's father didn't crack any codes, but he did crack the only existing Enigma machine when he was cleaning it. In 1972, Andrew Zool Langford was touting himself as a rock and roll promoter. He'd previously announced himself, with no experience at all, as Australia's Phil Spector and produced one of the worst records ever released in this country, Stan Horsley's Coachman, which was a country and western poker with a driving beat. After seeing the success of the Sunbury festivals, Andrew Zool Langford set about organising a rival event. Having secured a farm site at Malmarsh, some 40 kilometres northeast of Melbourne in Victoria, Langford began to advertise his festival as the largest and grooviest in Australia. Then he promptly ran out of money after taking a radio DJ out to lunch and, quote, a good time, end quote. Undeterred, Langford pressed on using the time-honoured practice of writing dud checks. Whilst this paid for advertising, it didn't help secure any bands or singers to appear on the bill. Even Langford realised that this was a possible drawback. This is when Andrew Zool Langford hit on his masterstroke, the Mystery Festival. He set about creating a veil of secrecy around who was going to be on the bill for the festival. He spread rumours seeded disinformation and planted false clues. He gave interviews categorically denying that he'd signed Elvis Presley. He refused to confirm that he'd spoken to Bob Dylan. He let slip that he'd been in the same room as Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, neglecting to mention that it was the Los Angeles airport. He looked smug and remained silent when questioned about the possible on-stage formation of a supergroup comprising members of the Rolling Stones, Tangerine Dream and Jefferson Airplane. As the festival grew closer, the rumours grew even wilder, mostly unprompted by Andrew Zool Langford, much to his amusement. The Beatles were going to reunite on stage at Melmarsh. Cream were going to reunite on stage at the Melmarsh. Jimi Hendrix was going to come back from the dead at Melmarsh. The plan worked a treat. Tens of thousands flocked to the farm site, doing the usual rock festival stuff. Tent city, naked swimming, free love and copious amounts of drugs. Then the music started. Langford had organised bands, but he'd done it on the cheap, which came as no surprise to those who knew him. Headlining was The Panache, a group of very young teens from Perth who had not recorded anything, nor actually played live together before, and they were the best of the bunch. However, the crowd was so strung out on various certain substances that they were unable to discern good from bad. The next act, solo singer Alice Pertree, was also well received. She accompanied herself on the accordion to an enraptured crowd. The Bobby Bland singers were as surprised as anyone when the crowd demanded an encore. The whole music festival became the stuff of legend, and more, with more people claiming to have attended than was physically possible. By the following Monday, the crowds dispersed and the acts began to seek out Langford for their payments. Langford disappeared from the site and the country. 
It was later rumoured that he was one of Ronnie Biggs' closest friends in Rio de Janeiro and that he was the shadowy figure behind the great health supplement saga that plagued the 1978 chess grand master finals in Reykjavik. Stephen, larger-than-life figures stalk apocryphal Australia. There's an awful lot of them, isn't there? Now, Michael, I understand you're taking us to wonderful Tasmania. Look, Stephen, I'm like a really informed version of Google Maps here, and I'm going to bring the delights of North Hummerford to all our listeners out there. North Hummerford, Tasmania, is situated 15 kilometres north of Penguin on Tasmania's beautiful north coast. A small, sleepy town, it is best known for a unique natural phenomenon, the annual migration of the Lesser Peavy. This colourful and noisy celebration of birth, death and the diurnal round of nature's wonders was first recorded by local farmers and clock salesman Israel Fetlock. In his journal, eventually published as Lust on the Land, a farmer's story, he noted enormous flocks of lesser peavies suddenly appearing every October, nesting in crevices, hollow logs and gumboots, then disappearing three months later. Naturalists have flocked to the area to study the lesser peavy and its meticulous habits. Many of the birds have been collected and banded, but no evidence has ever been found of their migratory routes or their wintering grounds. The lesser peavy is about the size of a standard house brick and about twice as tasty. The male is predominantly green, scarlet and cerise, while the female adds a splash of black and yellow to this fetching combination. The song of the Lesser Peavy is said to be reminiscent of a Dean Martin drinking song played backwards, but many disagree. North Hummerford has benefited greatly from the Lesser Peavy. T-shirts, caps and novelty underwear all carry the unofficial slogan of the town, There's nothing greater than a Lesser Peavy. Guesthouses and B&Bs have sprung up to cater for the hordes of naturalists, ornithologists and bird watchers who descend on the area in numbers approaching that of the birds. However, this entertaining spectacle is not without its dark side. The spotlight on the lesser peavy has been at a cost, and that cost is the plight of the greater peavy. The greater peavy is, paradoxically, only half the size of the lesser peavy. While its better-known relative is colourful, Tuneful and given to amusing aerial antics, the greater peavy is the colour of mud and has a song to match. The result was a species-wide depression. In the early 1980s, with every article in travel sections of major publications of the time, such as Who Weekly or Australian Geographic or Nude Parliamentarians, that focused on the festival atmosphere of the migration of the lesser peavy, hundreds of greater peavies left the area for the city. Families of greater peavies were in crisis. Nests were no longer homes. Counselling and support services were stretched to the limit and there was scarcely a phone box unvandalised in the area. Random attacks on lesser peavies were reported. The escalating tension was brought to the attention of the Tasmanian government in 1987 by Lottie Fetlock, a direct ancestor of Israel Fetlock who first described the migration of the lesser peavy. A cross-party committee investigated and immediately compiled a report and was awarded an operating budget of $3 million. 
The result was a hard-hitting series of reality TV advertisements graphically depicting the social malaise of the greater peavey. When the slogan, Don't Be a Peavey, was unveiled at a $1,000 a head fundraising dinner, it was fully anticipated that success was just around the corner. The greater peavey has been extinct since 1989. Oh, it's always a tragedy when we lose a species. Well, nearly nearly always, anyway. It is. uh, Every loss diminishes us. Now, Stephen, I have to admit, I have never heard of the subject of your next piece. Yeah, not a lot of people have heard of Edward McPherson. He was born in 1907 and, and sadly died in 1982. He was born to his mother and father, and he grew up in Junda, New South Wales, and later moved to Sydney in search of anything vaguely interesting. Much is known of his early life, but is considered too boring to relate. Suffice to say that the young Edward developed an interest in horticulture, women and puzzles. He indulged these interests by starting a small plant nursery, marrying and beginning what was to become Australia's most intricate maze. Edward's first efforts at maze design did little to indicate that he would create the masterpiece that was to follow. Yet it should be remembered that all of his early maize plantings were later incorporated into the big one. He first explored the notion of using English box hedging as a maize plant, but soon realised that it would take 10 years before the plants reached any sort of height. And given that he'd mistakenly planted miniature box, that height would not exceed 12 inches. Customers paid their money to stand in the middle of a maze that came up to their ankles. Despite Edward's exhortations to close their eyes to get a real feel for the thing, the customers were not happy and went away to seek their thrills elsewhere. It was this initial setback that set Edward McPherson on the road to his great legacy. Edward reasoned that if the customers could walk away from the maze when they were not satisfied, then it was the maze at fault, not the customer. He then set about growing a maze that everybody would be impressed with the McPherson Penitentiary was born. The Mac Maze, as the jail came to be known, was the world's first place of incarceration that did not require bars, guards or even electronic surveillance. The possibilities of the maze only came to be realised when a gang of thieves rushed into the unopened maze and were never seen again. The maze was never open to the public. The government took control and appointed Edward to an honorary position of governor, allowing him to add to the maze. Other than that, the place was used simply as a dumping ground for criminals. It's estimated that at the time of writing, some 2,000 inmates have been delivered to the maze. There has never been a successful escape that anyone knows about, and some opine that prisoners may have escaped and not re-offended. The government's answer to that has always been, fine with us. The Mac Maze is still in use. Its location is a closely guarded secret. Well, Stephen... Dare I say it? Dare I say that that was amazing. Amazing. (laughs) You did dare to say it. Now then, Michael, dipping into the mailbag this week, and I've got, well, I've got quite a few that I'd like to talk about, but I'll try to limit it to, say, around about four. From Geoffrey Tanks in Criminy, New South Wales, have we heard of Peter Aspie? Apparently, he was the first person to cross the Nullarbor Plain barefoot and backwards. 
he sounds like an interesting person or at least a person who does interesting things but maybe that's just me so that might be one to follow up right Stephen I'll put it on the whiteboard excellent we've got a whiteboard we did get a whiteboard delivery uh, came just the other day it's up on the wall and we will keep track of all of these items excellent now then next we actually received a book from Miss Tallulah Tull of Dimmy in Queensland. The book is called The Joy of Frogs. I've had a flick through and don't wait for the movie. <laughs> okay. As you say that, I'm, I'm just trying to cast the movie in my mind and it's not working. No, no, don't go there. And next, a Mr Carl Flinty of Gerbury in New South Wales asks if we could do a piece on the band The Crackers. Apparently they're an ensemble comprising ukulele, harp, bass tuba, stick, which is a multi-stringed guitar-bass hybrid, and a Hammond organ. They also have a vocalist who only speaks Japanese, and they perform reggae versions of songs by Megadeth, a popular heavy metal band. Uh, I might I might leave that one for you, Michael. Yeah, I'm just, uh, just wondering, yeah, but what makes them stand out? I think it's the harp. Ah, that starts to make sense. And lastly, a keen-eared listener has pointed out, this is from Mr Klimp of Gort in New South Wales, he points out that in the introduction, you, you actually mentioned this, Michael, researching until the cows come home. And Mr Klimp of Gort wants to know when these cows are actually going to get home. Where are they? It's a fair point, especially if one is of a literal cast of mind rather than a figurative cast of mind. And I have often thought that you should do things before the cows come home because after the cows come home, well, it's really crowded and noisy in the living room and they make a lot of mess. So you never get anything done after that. Well, that's true. That's true. Stephen, I only have one mailbag item and it's a brief one. It came from Jill St Elsewhere. And she asked if we had any room for a co-host. She says she's very good at research and she can pronounce particularly with no trouble at all. She hasn't been to the Penumbi Rocks then, has she? (laughs) Obviously. I think I'll get back to her and decline gracefully. Stephen, we've come to the end of episode five and already I'm thinking of the wonders that will be rolled out for episode six. But for now, I'll say farewell. And my name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins. And please do not forget, like, subscribe, follow. Oh, that's good advice, Stephen. And it's reminded me that if people out there really want to keep up with the latest with Apocryphal Australia, we are out there on Twitter, on Facebook and on Instagram. So... Keep an eye on those social media platforms for your entertainment. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.